Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, a weekly roundup of interesting news and discussions from the past week, plus quite often an interview topic or maybe more in-depth discussions on a particular topic. I am your host, Christian Schiller. This podcast episode also accompanies a newsletter where you can find the topics that are discussed and make up your own minds. You can find more about me on christianchiller.com or at christianch on Twitter, especially some of the other shows and newsletters that I now run. For those of you joining me from my old Gregarious Mammal show, some of the, the tone here will be similar, but I have gone back to doing the show alone, and maybe the topics will be slightly broader than pure tech. Okay, let's get started. A few uh, EU-related news. I am based here in Berlin. The EU is one of the many government institutions surrounding me. And there was a couple of interesting topics, technology-related, that uh, came up regarding the EU in the past couple of weeks. Uh, and as this is the first show of the new year, we are not going to be just covering things for the past week. So the first one that um, attracted my attention was from John Fingers over on Engadget. And this is the EU offering bounties to help find security flaws in open source tools. These bounties will start in January and focus on a specific uh, 14 tools that the EU and some of its institutions use most widely. These include a lot of tools you've probably heard of, things like VLC, uh, Drupal, which I used to actually contribute to way back, and even the GNU C library. Bounties are actually pretty reasonable, from about 25000 to 90000 uh, and they're running throughout most of this year. So while, of course, the EU is not 100% guaranteeing that uh, fulfilling these bounties will prevent problems in the future, it's interesting to see that institutions who use open source software are starting to step up and fund some of the development that needs to happen to keep them running in the, the most efficient and secure ways. And there'll be a bit more on open source I'll be circling back to a little bit after this, this specific EU section. And then somewhat related to... Security and <laughs> the EU again. It was an article on uh, Wired from Chris Stokel Walker, and this was a fascinating uh, title. The EU doesn't really have a plan to stop its elections being hacked. Um, for those of you who are not aware, of course, the EU is is comprised of uh, twenty seven. <laughs> uh, where that number may change in the near future, and that's something I'll come to in a minute, um, member nations, and it doesn't necessarily dictate how they should run their elections, um, but does offer some kind of um, institutional support around uh, security and uh, checking that those elections have happened fairly. But this is more specifically focusing on the European-level elections that do happen, and as this sort of strange uber body over member states, governments, the fact that their elections could be rigged uh, with a with a, a fairly powerful uh, institutional body is also quite important. It's actually interesting that uh, quite a few people quoted in this article from the EU and from other places mentioned that the DNC hack in 2016, which... Um, it wasn't that long ago, really, was what has really started a lot of these governments um, looking seriously into election rigging, election hacking. And in some respects, it's kind of crazy that, especially bearing in mind usually the length of election cycles, it's happening so recently. 
another interesting aspect in here was that Estonia is held up as an interesting example of a country that is doing very well. Um, but it's also interesting because there have been reports in the past that their online election system is not as secure as it could be. I also once witnessed the uh, project lead of the e-residency program at an event here voting at a conference to show how simple the system was. Um, so I'm not saying that that means it's insecure, but um, but maybe drawing so much attention to its simplicity opens it up to even more potential for hijacking. And of course, there are the usual players that... Uh, this security is being put in place against Russia, North Korea, China, Iran as well. Um, so we shall see what happens in elections later this year and in 2020, I guess, and see if these measures have been successful. Because in some of the other elections of recent times, I think the French election was held up as a good example, that security went surprisingly well and things weren't influenced. So we shall see if lessons have been learned enough to keep up with the hackers. And finally, in EU news or non-EU news, depending how you look at it, this was an article from Steve Ranger over on, uh, I'm going to go for the British pronunciation, ZDNet, about tech investment falling as Brexit uh, gathers strength, maybe. <laughs> um, I found this interesting because having a look at the total funding in 2018, London got 1.8 billion, which was down from uh, about 2.5 billion the year before. But its nearest uh, rival is Berlin with 936 million. So even in a time when investments are down in London, its nearest rival is at half investment, which I found quite staggering, actually. Um, and whilst I am very much pro-European and pro-Remain, and I have no qualms with saying that, I think there are bits of me at the back of my mind that kind of think that, despite the fact I'd rather it didn't happen, that uh, business will be as usual quite potentially in, in Britain post-Brexit, because really it hasn't made a huge impact so far, bearing in mind that I think from reports I feel like I've seen that uh, global investments are down anyway. So this isn't necessarily unique to the UK and the EU. But it, still, it was interesting just to see how much investment goes into the UK still. Whether that remains, I guess, is something that's interesting to be seen. And another interesting fact here is that Cambridge, another city in the UK, is actually at the bottom of the top 10. So the UK actually has two cities in the top 10. <laughs> so it's not... That's not too bad, I guess, in some respects. And now, sweeping back to what I alluded to earlier and talking about open source and sustainability of open source, this has been a hotly discussed topic recently, actually. And I won't go into too much detail right now. It might be something I would come back for for a more in-detailed discussion in the coming months. But around, um, I guess, the maturity of open source, but the, the negative sides of what's happening here. Uh, there's been a lot of, uh, I guess... I suppose it's more circumstantial um, evidence to show uh, without digging massively into uh, financial reporting of various open source companies that a lot of open source companies that traditionally made their money out of um, commercial options, commercial support, hosted versions of their software are beginning to feel the pinch because of cloud providers 
providing their software, plus obviously a fully supported and maintained uh, set of uh, servers and instances to run that on, plus all the other software they're likely to need, and providing it generally in a far better and um, more feature-packed way than some of the specific software vendors. And this is problematic, of course, because it means these vendors are not making any money, or not making as much money anymore, to continue supporting the open source versions. And I have heard from a a few people who work at uh, companies who I won't mention, but some major open source vendors that are experiencing this problem. And um, firstly, there was an interesting article on a blog called The Observation Deck uh, from uh, Brian Cantrell talking about some of the background behind this and some of the strange licensing that has come out of a few companies recently to attempt to combat this but maybe not handling it the best way they could. And the fallout from some of that, I guess, with the best of intentions, they were trying to protect open source projects, but maybe it could have been handled better. And then interestingly, uh, I think just a couple of days ago, um, AWS, of course, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, cloud vendor at the moment, has repeatedly in the past created pretty much its own versions of popular software, did a similar thing with uh, Mongo, uh, one of the many companies that is feeling the the pinch from the pressure of cloud vendors. And AWS launched a new service called DocumentDB. And actually sometimes when you browse the AWS product pages to see the amount of products they have, it's quite staggering. They really seem to do have a product for everything. Um... I did have some discussions with some people at Mongo who claim that DocumentDB is not, doesn't really touch most of what Mongo does. But of course, we all know that being the best and having the best features is not always the most important thing and that people generally use fairly limited feature selection. So maybe it won't matter. I guess the interesting aspect, of course, is that uh, as far as I know, Pretty much most of the software equivalents that AWS creates are not open sourced. So they're not really given back to the community in any way, shape or form. And while Mongo has some fairly strong commercial components, it still does have a core open source product project that people can use. Um, And I guess the thing that stuck in my mind the most about this was this whole aspect of AWS kind of saying, well, if we don't get what we want, we'll just make it ourselves. And then you get this sort of somewhat black box software that no one really has any insight into. And I guess the other interesting aspect before I wrap up on this is that AWS and Amazon haven't contributed much of what they uh, have learned or created through AWS back to open source. Whereas Google Cloud from Google and Microsoft Azure from Microsoft have and a lot of the products that they have created are contributed back. Not all, of course, but more, I think, than AWS, which is interesting. So not all cloud vendors are created equally. And if you need another reason to dislike Amazon, uh, there's, there's another one there. Um, again, we will see if that matters to people and if supporting open source properly actually really matters or if they just want the convenience and everything in one place. And finally, rounding up the topics that caught my interest uh, this this year or this week, if you like, was firstly, actually both of these are from The Guardian. Um, one from Jordan Kistner 
on uh, an interesting piece of technology that is helping people who can't speak speak. Um, and of course, one of the classic examples of some software like this is the one that Stephen Hawking used to use. But there are, of course, many others um, and uh, used by less famous people. Um, and I suppose this is always one of these nice aspects. It's always interesting and, and pleasant to come back to uh, the fact that there are technologies that are definitely used for good. Some not, some can be suspect, and there are definitely some that are used for good. And helping people communicate in ways they couldn't before is definitely one of those. Um, and this is quite an interesting article about um, a couple of different pieces of software. One in a particular called Vocal ID about how they actually uh, build up a profile of someone's voice, preferably before they lose it. But of course, this isn't always possible. But um, and then and then they will create a relatively authentic generated voice from those samples, which I find quite fascinating. And obviously, it prevents you getting the the overtly robotic voice that I guess earlier versions like Stephen Hawking used are famous for. Related to accessibility, and this sort of came up in my research because I was helping uh, create an article on um, ways to make the web more accessible recently. And this was uh, something from uh, Chris Ashton, who works for the BBC, actually, but on Smashing Magazine, which is a a German publication, about using the web for a day using a screen reader. And I think this is very interesting. This is another one of those... uh, I say interesting a lot, don't I? Um, One of those... I can't think of anything else to say, but interesting now. Um, Where... Often developers especially are accused of of creating software in perfect conditions, creating software that works great on a high-speed internet connection but not thinking about users in places where that doesn't exist. And this applies to people who use accessibility tools to browse the web, including screen readers, that a lot of modern, highly complex layouts are terrible for screen readers. And if you use the web with a screen reader, you appreciate that and then you are more passionate or motivated to change it of course so i would urge any kind of budding web designer slash developer to have a read of this just to get an idea of what it's like and try it yourself i shudder to think what some of my web presences are like with a, a screen reader and i think it's a good exercise to try and just just to appreciate how other people browse the web and finally going completely randomly another article from the guardian uh from mark o'connell a title that really grabbed my eye because I I, I love kind of uh, these crazy uh, conspiracy theories and dystopian visions and things like that. Um, why Silicon Valley billionaires are prepping for the apocalypse in New Zealand. And I actually spoke to a few New Zealand friends after sharing this um, who who did confirm this has been happening for a little while. But this is the, the, the tale of a handful of fairly wealthy, mostly Silicon Valley and, and other American entrepreneurs buying property in New Zealand because they feel that when the shit hits the proverbial fan, it would be a good place to ride out the apocalypse. <laughs> Whether that's true, when it's surrounded by so much water and is also famous for earthquakes, uh, I'm not 100% sure. But the article is quite fascinating and the, the, the way that the article is written is reminiscent of like an old 
sort of Lovecraftian or 1920s detective novel of the the writer following these obscure paths and getting snatches of conversations from from people who might have an idea about shady things that happen and then they get a moment to to uh, sneak into a ranch of a particular Silicon Valley entrepreneur and yeah it's just quite a fascinating read and uh, I guess not surprising but um, surprising. So that was my roundup of interesting tidbits from the news that caught my eyes over the past week or so. Um, still sharpening up the format. Uh, I hope you enjoyed some of those and go and have a read of some of the articles yourself. And please, if you have anything you'd like me to consider and take a look at, then you can find my contact details on christianchiller.com slash contact. I'd love to hear from you and some feedback, of course. But to round off this show, here is an interview I did about a month ago now, but then the holidays got in the way of releasing it under the old podcast. This is an interview I did with Rachel Black, a developer advocate at a company here in Berlin called Lisk. I have interviewed Lisk before, their CMO, uh, Thomas. You can find that interview on an episode of the Gregarious Mail podcast. It was quite a popular episode. And Lisk is a, uh, a blockchain-based company that is, I guess, trying to do things a little differently and has always, in my mind, worked a lot harder to make a usable and useful experience for developers. And in this interview, we talk about Lisk a bit, we talk about the roadmap, but we also have a more general conversation about uh, working in, in developer relations in the blockchain space and the kind of unique aspects that that uh, technical culture has, plus also developer relations more broadly and um, yeah, funding companies. And a fairly, it's a fairly wide-ranging discussion, so I hope you enjoy. My name is Rachel. I'm a tech evangelist here at LISC. I have a development background, so I was working for a number of years um, in London at a number of startups, uh, JavaScript background, so mainly working with React and also some Node. Um, and it's over there whilst I kind of got the blockchain bug started, getting going to loads of meetups and eventually uh, helping to kind of organize meetups and then also speaking at meetups. So it's kind of from then that I kind of got a taste for the kind of evangelism side of thing and the developer relations thing. So this is how I've kind of ended up now working at Lisk in the tech evangelist role, which is super exciting. So Lisk, it's um, we're a blockchain application platform. Um, we're kind of, we are building the tools to allow people to build decentralized applications. Um, so kind of there's a number of other players kind of doing similar things. What differentiates us is that we have like a very um, very strong focus on accessibility. Mm-hmm. And this is something we've kind of had from day one, which is why why we chose our language as JavaScript. Uh, we're now migrating some of that over to TypeScript because we find right. it's actually uh, really uh, beneficial for our developers. You didn't have quite enough levels of abstraction, so you should probably add another one. Yeah, well, TypeScript's working for us, so it's, it's exciting to bring that in. Um, and it's so basically we build the infrastructure for you to create this decentralized app and We're doing that in a slightly different way to kind of the smart contracts that you'd get on, say, Ethereum. Uh, One of our kind of key offerings is uh, side chains. Mm -hmm. So the kind of future that we envision is that you would be able to go to Lisk, use our developer tooling, so Elements and Commander, which are kind of a very core part of of what we do. Uh, Use that to kind of build your own side chain. um, And then in that side chain, your distributed app would live. 
Um, and then that can communicate to the list main chain and then, you know, in the future, potentially to other side chains. So it's a it's a blockchain application platform, um, which is using side chains to kind of bring scalability and customization to, to the ecosystem. Is the Lisk main chain public within Lisk or? Lisk main chain is public, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But just within Lisk or in theory to, I don't know, any kind of random HTTP call or something? Um, so it's, I mean, you can run a, a, if you run a node, you can run a private node to kind of, we have an API layer. Yeah. So we have both um, HTTP and we have... A, it's not behind authentication or no. it's completely public domain we, chain. Yeah, okay. yeah. So anyone can pull down and run a node. Um, we have delegates who may run a node, the, the ledger is public, so mm-hmm. you can go and like, you know, track how many lists have been spent. It's, it's, it's a public ledger in that sense. Um, we have delegates who also run nodes and some of them run it with slightly more privacy because they're obviously yeah. kind of, yep, yep. Uh, they're forging, you know. Um, but yeah, we, we have uh, public APIs. Mm-hmm. I spoke with uh, with Thomas uh, six months, no, actually it was about six months ago. Yeah. Let's, let's go with six months. Yeah, Maybe yeah. slightly less, but let's go for six months. Sounds better. Uh, and um, have there been any, let's start with if there's been any major developments since then, or yeah. major changes so this all got kicked off by I went to your first birthday party, which was the big relaunch. Things went a little quiet. Yeah. Um, I know you've been hiring a lot, mm-hmm. which implies something is happening, but not always. Mm-hmm. But um, So what has happened in the past six months? Yeah, so actually we've done quite a lot. And I think when you spoke to Thomas, they were in the process of launching 1.0 mm-hmm. to Testnet. That's gone to Mainnet. Um, and since then we've been um, releasing quite a number of I think we've had three minor releases and we're keeping up much more kind of incremental releases and that's going to be part of our development process going forward. Um, so that happened back at the end of summer. The last couple of weeks, we've had two big announcements and mm-hmm. that is our revised roadmap. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a very detailed document, which kind of, it breaks down from where we are now to our full sidechain development kit. Let's just go into that in a bit more detail mm-hmm. than we get to number two. Is it revised in terms of detail or timelines or both? Uh, so both. I mean, well, we've released it without timelines because okay. we, we're we seeing sort of that this is, uh, you know, kind of becoming an industry standard to do that. Um, and we want to we want to make sure that we maintain the trust and it is a hard thing to do. So mm-hmm. we don't want to set up, you know, false expectations. But the roadmap can definitely be used as a, a guide for like prioritization and the order that we're mm-hmm. going to do things in. Of course, everything that we do is on GitHub and is public, so it's completely out there for for the community to kind of track our yeah. progress and how how we're achieving those uh, milestones on the roadmap. But yeah, and apart from increased detail, is there anything new in terms of items or order or? Yeah, so I mean, one of the big things is, and this kind of ties into the other part of our announcement, is this uh, LIPS, which is mm-hmm. LISC improvement proposal. Oh, this is number two, or yeah, okay. so so, so we like have- the. IPES, or however they pronounce it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, like, um, just as we had it, BIPs, the Bitcoin improvement okay, yeah. proposals. BIPs, IPES, LIPS. Exactly, exactly. Um, following the kind of industry naming convention there. Um, but these are technical and academic uh, documents that detail um, what we do both on the protocol layer and we also have application layer ones as well. So it's really bringing a lot more kind of transparency and detail to the milestones um, in the roadmap. So it's not just it's not just a kind of superficial roadmap in the sense that we think we're going to do this and, you know, we might do that. Um, it's really bringing the kind of solid technical backbone to, to the roadmap. Mm-hmm. 
and we launched with Nine Lips. Um, but we've got a team of um, we've got a team of cryptographers, um, serious academic backgrounds. They are they're working on them full time. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be more coming out as as they are finished. Um, and also our our development team is also producing a Lips for kind of application architecture so there's sort of two levels there um was this a reaction to things that people were asking for in in terms of specific lips or um well it's just kind of it's about us um having a transparent process um and it's it's obviously we've got our team here at light curve who are working on on these lips um and we want to be very clear with the community in terms of this is why we're doing what we're doing and this is this is the reason for it um, so it's for transparency for us, mm. but it's also nice in the sense that it gives the community um, an opportunity to also be part of that process, either through feedback um, or if they actually want to submit their mm-hmm. own lip, it is completely open. So it's very much about having a kind of collaborative and transparent process. Mm-hmm. And we kind of, we see that very much as kind of part of, you know, kind of part of the ethos of being open source and including people in, in the decision-making process. Um, this gets into an interesting territory. I don't think it's something you ever covered before. Mm. And you may or may not have an answer right now because as far as I'm aware, you're mostly uh, VC and like crowdfunding funded. Oh, so we did yeah. an ICO back in so 2016. So purely ICO. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So... Um, in terms of, and I don't, I know this is always the horrible question to every uh, tech startup. Mm. I don't necessarily want to get into terms of monetization in that will it work, but is is there an end goal intention of it being a SaaS style platform in terms of people will pay for levels of access or something like that, or is that not being considered yet? Or mm-hmm. and there is a there is a reason I'm asking this question, but. So Which we, I'll get to it a bit, but so we have um, so we have a separation between the Lisk Foundation, mm-hmm. um, which is responsible for sort of managing the funds um, and kind of all the legalities around the ICO and, yeah. and, and the structure. Um, and here, at, but our core team is actually we're employed via Lightcurve, mm-hmm. so it's, there's a separation there. So Lightcurve is kind of a sort of for for profit. Um, software consultancy basically which is building on the Lyft platform okay um, so and this is something that you see in a lot of other blockchain yep. projects so the actual foundation itself um, obviously it, you know it holds a lot of Lisk. so if you know Lisk grows and it becomes successful then it, it yeah, gets monetary gain from so that so Lisk, um, Lisk at the moment is intended to remain Free to use as a platform. Yes. Okay. Yes. So the the, the reason I asked this question was around potential. Uh, you know, there's always been this this weird balancing act sometimes with some open source projects, of when sometimes some contributors become a bit too big that bigger than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and through the the lips, I was wondering if there may be the potential of like uh, client sway. But if if there is no kind of client priority then I suppose it probably is something that won't happen mm-hmm, mm-hmm. quite yet I mean, mm-hmm. if things change who knows but um, yeah okay uh, and has anyone submitted any yet apart from the, the team uh, so we only released it like two weeks ago so Come we on. have we haven't um, <laughs> they are very um, the, so the requirements to submit a lip it is quite detailed um, and we've kind of set the bar quite high in terms of the, the content there. So we haven't had one in yet, but we definitely welcome that. Or well, have people been interacting with the... People have been interacting with them and it's all up there 
on GitHub for people to read. Um, and we've, you know, we've had people signing up to our mailing list and the submissions will come. And I think certainly there are kind of milestones on our development uh, roadmap that are, you know, potentially more contentious. Um, so we can definitely envision a lot more kind of community contributions and debate around that. Um, but it, the interesting thing about LIPS also is that we're also building out our partnerships. Um, so we are building out partnerships with King's College London um, and also... I'd actually like to come to partnerships in these cases in a minute. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted you, you just you just kind of tossed me a, a bit of bait there that I couldn't mm. resist. Controversial roadmap items. Yeah. So, yeah, of course, of course. Um, so, I mean, I think... One of the potential con- controversial ones is we, we, we're a DPOS, a dedicated proof of stake mm-hmm. uh, consensus mechanism. So we are looking at ways to kind of make that fairer and more equitable and kind of improve um, engagement from the community so that delegates are... There is like competition between delegates and that I mean, we're very lucky in the sense that we have seen some really fantastic contributions from the delegate community. So we've had... Uh, a centre open, a list, a elite centre opened up in uh, Shanghai, mm-hmm. um, and we have more um, more projects like that coming on board. And we have very active members who are kind of uh, running meetup groups, um, contributing to our code and identifying bugs. Um, so we really want to kind of um, facilitate it. So we're kind of fostering that active contribution to the list network, um, and that's something that. Of course, in any uh, DPoS system, there is a lot of contention around any changes to to these mechanisms. Yeah. So I think that's potentially would be uh, one of the most uh, contentious ones. And also, I think one of the trickier ones, and I think this is a, a tricky thing for kind of the industry um, industry wide, is this kind of side chain communication interoperability mm-hmm. piece. Uh, there are various ways about doing this. Um, we are believers in kind of doing a, a decentralized approach. So we, we could do a very superficial sidechain communication. This is something we could kind of implement now, but we want to um, we want to do it in a decentralized way. And it's it, there are a number of approaches to doing that. And I think with having lips and, and kind of um, giving enough room for debate around that will get, get us in a position where we are getting the solution that's... Um, you know, best for not just for not not just that we think is best at Light Curve, but it's also best for the community um, as well. So wanting to yeah. be very collaborative there. And then is this? Uh, I'd actually be interested to know what's the what's the separation between kind of issues in a in a in a repository and lips. Um, and I know this sounds strange because the word mm. issue is obviously fairly weighty, yeah. but often people use it for all sorts of, yeah, <laughs> all sorts of yeah. things. But is it a, an opportunity to break out the more theoretical issues into discussion mm-hmm. as opposed to just pure code contributions and, and things like that? So with LIPS, we um, we are pushing... I mean, most of the conversation on LIPS happens on a mailing list, okay. which is oh, uh, right. similar okay. to the uh, uh, BIPs process because it's not really suited for like people creating issues on, on GitHub yeah. and that kind of, that's more suited for kind of, you know, pull requests yeah, and, yeah, and that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. level of conversation. And, and it is quite uh, detailed and it's, um, you know, these are, these are hard topics that require like thoughtful discussion mm-hmm. and thoughtful mm-hmm. debate. So mailing list is the uh, medium that we've chosen for that. And that's, you know, something that we're, we're all partaking in as well. 
Okay. Okay. Um, so let's go back to what you started to talk about, uh, mm. partnerships, use cases. Um, I would think that partnerships and use cases were somewhat overlapped, but maybe not. But mm-hmm. uh, let's start with the partnerships and if use cases are relevant mention those if not we'll go use cases afterwards so in terms of i mean i guess there's a separation in 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 the sense of people that we're partnering Mm. with in terms of our academic research for lips so we can partner with universities on that and it's certainly a very nice mechanism for uh you know students and university members to get exposure to this really um exciting area of technology um when it comes to kind of use cases we've this quarter we've hired um we've hired on the business development side so mm-hmm. we are you know we're very much going through the process i think we're going to be launching a business paper soon so i don't want to say too much about that but um we are you know obviously we're actively kind of researching and you know looking for a kind of first sort of projects on board and and what industry is that going to be and these these are very active conversations that are ongoing in in like at the moment all right, but let, let's 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 dig a little deeper yeah. into that. I mean, in terms of, I mean, you know, we, we all know that the blockchain space is sometimes a little guilty of uh, lots of people making things and not so many people making things with those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can we can you know we can we can we can uh, give a little bit of a an excuse there because yeah. <laughs> everybody's having the same problem. Yeah. Um, but uh, are people building? And if so, what are they building? So with uh, List currently, we have, I mean, we've had our main chain operational. Mm. Um, we are, the next phase of development that we are about to go into is our architecture and design phase. Um, and that's to kind of give us a very modular uh, and flexible design for, for our core. After that, we will be able to go into, we'll be able to release our Alpha SDK, mm-hmm. which is our first offering the SDK so it's because okay, so the SDKs because I think the SDKs were announced at the first birthday and they're still coming yeah, <laughs> yeah so, I mean yeah, yeah okay. so it's um, and I think this is kind of a, a thing that we've seen industry wide okay. is that the development actually does take a lot longer well, okay let's go back a step then mm-hmm. so um, can people build at the moment you can build at the moment you can so, write contracts can't you I think no so currently well currently you can run nodes um, okay. and nodes have like so there's APIs associated nodes, so you can build um, you can build like apps that would kind of work with Lisk as, as a currency level, as a okay. kind of what the main chain does. Um, and the main chain is it's we've deliberately made it quite limited in the functionality that it has. So it's mainly around sending transactions and obviously also voting for delegates. Um, we wanted to like not add too much complexity there, um, so you can kind of interact with it on that level. But when we come to um, creating, you know, our, our SDK offerings, it will be more around you're able to create your own sidechain and you can set up your own custom transactions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you probably want different transactions than we've got on on main chain, and that will be specific to your use case and and what your application does. Um, so the first um, SDK offering will be after the um, architecture and design uh, phase is completed. Um, but that's going to be Alpha SDK, so it is going to be uh, pretty slimmed down. We won't have um, all of the support of our developer tooling, which is kind of really what we want to mm-hmm. give people. So it will be more um, for more adventurous developers um, and you know potentially ones that we have relationships with. After that, we've also got a beta SDK and release candidate SDK, and they'll be increasingly supported by Elements and Commander. 
Um, so you'll be able to kind of use Commander to, uh, you know, set up a lot of the tasks for you to kind of create your sidechain and, and that will take a lot of the pain out for mm-hmm. developers. And then using Elements, which is our library, and we're we're increasingly pulling out, um, we're going through a process um, of pulling out bits of core, rewriting it in Elements, and then it'll be consumed in core again via mm-hmm. Elements. So Elements will kind of become like the building bo- building blocks, but also um, Commanders, like a super useful tool. Once we get onto beta and release candidate SDK, there'll be much more support for more tooling. So basically at the moment you have the, it is possible to have side chains, which I think you create from the, I can't remember the exact tool, but I remember doing it. So, <laughs> so currently, I mean, so currently we don't, I mean, we don't have side chain communication. Oh, okay. I feel um, like I did something. No, no, we don't. Yeah, we, we've um, actually signed, it's interesting, the side chain communication is actually coming um, at the okay. end of our roadmap. And the reason for that is that we've really wanted to prioritize um, getting the SDKs out because as a developer, if you want to work with LISC and you want to um, build your decentralized app or your proof of concept, um, the sidechain communication part, that's actually the last last part you need. You need... um, you need to be able to create the app. You need to be able to, you know, create the side chain that it's going to live on, um, and you need the, the support of the tooling there. Yeah, so okay. that that will come yeah. last. Um, but yeah, so currently you can. I mean, you can run a node. We've got quite a number of node operators, um, and you can interact with the node. So we have people in the community who are kind of they're building kind of fun tools on top of. Um, Lisk main chain, um, which is kind of not really the intention, but it's great that people are kind of already playing around and, and getting a feel for that. If um, something's public, people will do something. With exactly, it. <laughs> that's, that's the joy of um, you know open source yeah. development. Um, so, how are they building that at the moment then? So we have um, so we have um, so the number of projects we have um, things like um, we have one which is a website that you can it's it's more of a kind of like these are more kind of passion projects and yeah, hobby sure, things sure. um stuff like we've had an integration with if this then that mm-hmm. um so you can hook it up so if somebody sends list then you can add okay, your triggers yeah. it could be a text so it's, message. It's, it's leveraging some kind of standard exactly um so it's kind of building on top of, of the main chain um ultimately you know it will go much beyond that when we have yeah. SDKs. But the smart contract language in for you for want of a better word mm-hmm. that exists or that's still also in development. So we are not using a smart contract yeah, approach. Sure. We have a okay. transaction based approach. Okay. And the reason is that we found that actually um, for most use cases you don't need the full mm-hmm. scope of writing a smart contract. Now it may be in the future that we build that into one of our side chains and, and because we also have a modular approach we can build that in. But for now, we're creating, we have set transactions in uh, Lisk main chain, and then we will allow um, users when they create their dApps, they'll also be able to set up their transactions because the reality is you don't need that kind of full kind of But when you complete. mentioned uh, JavaScript earlier, mm. what what is that doing at the moment? Then? How, how When do people need the JavaScript? Okay, so essentially we are, we say JavaScript, um, oh no, though, right, now yeah, TypeScript yeah. is coming, oh, sorry, TypeScript, more part yeah. of it. Um, that's okay. Um, so it's 
in some ways we're more of a kind of Node.js project. So okay. we have um, each, so each of our nodes is a node server. Is a node so, node. Yeah, exactly. It's a node <laughs> node. It's a node node. Okay, yeah. um, so to work with it, obviously JavaScript background, node background is going to really set you up there. Um, so yeah, it's a node server and it, we're using Postgres and okay. quite another different things. And then it's obviously got the technology to speak to other nodes. Um, mm. So that's kind of broadly how it works. Um, okay, this is interesting. Now you've mentioned that to me, having worked in this, also in this space in the past, this is sounding increasingly like a a somewhat traditional uh, distributed database. <laughs> but I don't know if that's true or not. Well, I mean... With a slightly more advanced um, consensus model, maybe. I think so. I mean, I think if we can kind of come more towards a developer experience yeah. of that, I think that can actually be a real asset because mm. writing smart contracts and getting your head around, you know, solidity and that whole process, something like that, that can be a hurdle in itself. Mm-hmm. Um Obviously, we still have, you know, the whole kind of um, all the cryptography to back up the distributed uh, ledger in LISC. So it's kind of in some ways, yes, it is bringing in Mm. some of that familiar environment to to development, but still um, holding on to the kind of. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's probably going to be a criticism that some people might have. I don't know. I'm not sure. Again, as we were talking earlier before we started recording, was you know, blockchain use cases are small. It, it's a, a, a still a significant amount of projects in terms of um, sheer numbers, but mm-hmm. actually the amount that probably need that is still, it's not every application. Mm-hmm. So there are plenty of applications where a distributed database is, is fine and that's all they need. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you come to uh, the ability for people to transfer ownership and things like that without a central kind of authority then yeah. becomes more interesting. So yeah, there there are still use cases for just a purely decentralized distributed database. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. definitely. But I mean, we are 100% a kind of blockchain project. So we are kind of marrying there's elements of the developer yeah. experience that yeah. mirror something that people are familiar with, but also bringing mm-hmm. in um, the decentralized yeah. element as well. And And you're completely right. I think... Certainly what we'll see when blockchain becomes more widely adopted is that maybe it's only a small part of an application yeah. that it is utilizing blockchain and maybe um, there will still be a lot of the kind of traditional tech that supplements that as well. This is actually uh, digging slightly further here because, um, I mean, there was, a, there, there is, there was, is still, I think, mm another project in Berlin that was attempting to do something similar in a slightly different way, which mm-hmm. is Big Chain DB, mm-hmm. who, in terms of blockchain startups, are relatively old, mm-hmm. <laughs> and especially the company that came before them, um, which was a bit of a, an odd idea in that it was a database under the hood with a blockchain on top to kind of give transactional support, which is actually often what is missing in mm-hmm. distributed databases anyway. And I don't, I am never entirely clear how successful they've been with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of uh, moving forward, is that a project you look at to see here's some things we'll do differently or we are doing this differently or we are different completely because mm-hmm. their model was pretty different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know they kind of had the whole side project to make like a large public database of databases, which 
I don't know if that ever really happened, but mm-hmm. if you were, as a normal person, to ever run Big Chain, you were running it just privately, really. Yeah, yeah, Most of the time. So it was a slightly different paradigm, but is it a project that you look to for any form of mm-hmm. inspiration or, or the opposite? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I don't know too much about Big Chain yeah, GB. Okay. I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, familiar well, with you, it, but I don't... You as a, as a kind of, yeah. yeah, I mean, we... I mean, we kind of our research team and our developers are yeah. very much kind of keeping up to date with the latest project particularly you might even have hired some of those <laughs> of course it's a, it's a very kind of small yeah. uh, small world here in Berlin um, but I think really for us our kind of core offering will be this kind of building a blockchain application yep. platform so we're we're not so yeah, much yeah. focused so, on the yeah, data like, like, side of things like Hyperledger has too with the Hyperledger Compose which is also interesting yeah they kind of push it as a, a something that uh, a business analyst can use, which I, I don't think is true right now, but um, but that's the goal, the right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, uh, so your role with Lisk is a developer relations, developer evangelist, developer mm-hmm. advocate. I don't know. It's, depends on the company and the culture, really. But yeah, somewhat the same. Um, which is still a relatively new role, even in Europe for general tech, mm-hmm. but especially in the blockchain space. It's a space where they're only starting to hire things like technical writers, community, well, not most, community managers have been around for a while, but mostly because of the ICO stuff. But uh, technical writers, developer relations, support engineers, these mm-hmm. sorts of roles that actually make the stuff understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, won't, I won't go into too much detail of what that means right now because I think it's a role that depends on the company. Some are in sales, some are in engineering, some are in marketing. It really depends on the company. It's one of those very nebulous roles. Yeah. But in my mind, i.e. a role which is sort of sitting somewhere between product, engineering, support, a little bit of soft sales and marketing as well. Yeah. The interesting aspect you have at the moment <laughs> is – You've already kind of admitted that a lot of the tooling isn't available yet. So what do you, I don't mean this in a bad way, but what are you, what are you uh, promoting for one of a better word to developers right now in your role? Okay. So one thing, um, so some of our developer tooling is there, but we're just going to keep adding to it. So commander and elements are there as as projects. Um, But obviously we, there's a lot of, you know, we haven't released our SDK, which is kind of, the you know essentially the core offering um so we are you know and you're right it's a very kind of it can be a very wide-reaching role um and i think particularly it's very interesting with something like blockchain which is such a highly technical uh, product and i think kind of developer relations is a very essential mm-hmm. role in that because communicating to developers understanding their needs um understanding what people are trying to to you know do with the project um what are their pain points um so it's a lot of kind of i'm working you know i work in i sit in marketing but i'm with the developers every day so very much acting as this kind of bridge in between the two um and communicating that so you know heavily involved in our blogs and vlogs and meetups and presenting but also we're now doing a lot of um work into terms of mapping who's in the community now but also how do we reach out to developers outside the mm-hmm. blockchain space because yeah, yeah, we want yeah. to bring people in um, and we need to kind of understand uh, sort of what are the motivations for a developer who's you know maybe they have quite a lot of experience outside of blockchain um, what are we what are we giving them that makes them want to kind of build with this what what are we kind of 
what are we going to offer them? So there's there's a lot of angles and there's a lot of parts to it. Um, and yeah, it's a very exciting role. And so I guess uh, you hit upon a lot of challenges in the space too. Like a lot of traditional developers are somewhat skeptical yeah. of blockchain as having a point, as being nothing more than vaporware, etc. So how much have you pushed out of the safe space into mm -hmm. that wider space? And what's the kind of, if you have, what mm -hmm. are the kind of interactions you've had so far and so, how have they been? Yeah, so I mean, last week, uh, development team was at React Day. I, I wasn't there. Um, so we definitely are kind of building out that. Um, and we get developers, like, so we had a meetup last week as well in Amsterdam and we had developers from Stripe and yeah. we're getting developers outside of, yeah. out of the blockchain space. And I think partly because, because at LISC we've always had this focus on accessibility and having uh, readable documentation and being somewhat realistic yeah promises well to a to a point so there's been a few things that slipped off the roadmap slightly but, <laughs> but apart from that yeah yeah and it's um yeah i mean we can't when you speak to developers it's not about kind of selling some crazy ico vision it's more about practically what can you do where, where are you at and being very realistic with that mm. um and yeah, just putting, we have a you know team of people also writing documentation um, and all of our developers are, you know, also available on our community channels. Okay. Um, and we also see actually what's kind of nice is within our so community, we have a lot of de developers who are kind of also helping onboard people. So you can go to the list chat and in the help channel, there's always people kind of stepping in and helping out. Um, so we really kind of want to grow that community of people who are excited by the project who are building mm -hmm. with it and also um helping people um onboard people as mm. well and i mean a common thing that some developer relations people do it, again it depends on the company budgets mm. etc is uh, things like uh, conference talks and stuff like that um if that is something you have been doing how have you found uh pitching LISC as a, or things related to LISC as a topic? Has it been easy? Are uh, people in charge of CFPs often a bit blasé about blockchain space? Or mm -hmm. have, you, I mean, yeah, have you had any luck with that? Or So we were at, um, we were at Blockchain Live in London. In I, guess, I guess we should probably set aside the, the I mean, let, let, let's maybe focus on, First, on the, the non-blockchain events, mm -hmm. have, have you had any success with those? Or So, we've. Um, I wasn't at React Day. Mm. Um, I was out of the office at the end of last week. Um, I know we were at TechCrunch also on mm. the same day, so it was like a super busy day for us. Um, we actually did have a lot of um, startups who were kind of starting to build. Um, spoke to the business development uh, guys here at LISC, and they were saying... Yeah, we're getting a lot of interest from everything from like GovTech mm -hmm. to um, a whole range of kind of sectors. So they're kind of in the process of of mapping out kind of which yeah. which uh, use cases do we want to align with. But we do get a lot of, um, in fact, we get a lot of people kind of inquiring, like, how can we start building with LISC already? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's a hard one to sell. I think that dose of reality is an important one. Mm. Um, the community has been a little... A little <laughs> A little up itself, shall we say, mm. <laughs> for a little bit too long. And various events have maybe started to get a bit of a dose of, um, what's the word? There's a great word for that. I can't think what it is. There's a phrase for sometimes, uh, you know, 
a much needed dose of reality. Yeah. I'm sure there's a better word, but I can't think what it is. I think it's, and I think certainly particularly with where we're at now. And it humbles you a bit more. And then, yeah, the, 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 the conversation starts to become more balanced and, yeah, I hope to see more pragmatic talks at developer conferences in the future about the use of uh, blockchain technology, hopefully. Yeah. We'll see, if they let us in the door. I think definitely, <laughs> definitely with where we're at now in terms of the market being quite a strong bear market, yeah. um, which I think for you know for us who are developers and have an interest in the technology, yeah. these are actually really interesting times oh. because this is when we build. Actually, this is actually an interesting thing that is very I'm glad you brought that up. Currently, mostly Litecurve slash Lisk is funded by ICO revenue. Yeah. Um, so I'm guessing you have a tradable token. Yeah. It's not been a good time for tradable tokens. Yeah. Uh, I am not entirely sure what that's meant for Lisk. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't heard much, so it probably hasn't been too drastic. Mm-hmm. But um, in my mind, it's interesting when we get into this, it may be not so relevant for what people are doing with Lisp, but with some of the other platforms, you know, like putting a token value on people's input to systems and things like that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the economy has been a fundamental part of some of these mm-hmm. and the only thing that in theory makes them work. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, shock horror, when there's a tradable asset, there's also a significant amount of people who just look to profit from that with yeah, no course. input into the system at all. Yeah. And that is collapsing a little bit. And in some respects, a lot of the technical people say this is a good thing because now we can focus on the technology. Mm. But of course, if the entire technology is also partially funded by that, it's a bit of a yeah. double-edged sword. But I mean, how how has Lisk as a project found the slightly slight increased skepticism in the value of tokens? Is it a good thing to you? Is it a bad thing? Is it a short-term bad thing, mm-hmm. but maybe a long-term good thing? I think, I mean, I think we're kind of fortunate in terms of uh, what we do and what we offer in that we aren't, it's not like part of our core values. So we are building this platform, which is going to be very much around uh, developers being able to create these blockchain applications. Now, of course, we have a list token and um, that is part of our ecosystem, but we're not like a currency project that's not, yeah, yeah. we're not, we're not. It doesn't matter if you are or you're not, people but you, still yeah, of course, of course. And, like, um, and we're also, you know, fortunate in the sense that we've, um, you know, we've been professionally, financially managed. We've got, that's been handled by the List Foundation. So we're, we've kind of been, we're not affected by it in that sense, but obviously we do see changes in the community. So mm. on community channels, um, now it's the people who are still engaged with the project. It's becoming more of the people who are technically interested. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's why it is interesting for us from a sort of developer point of view, because now it, maybe there's less distractions yeah. and we don't yeah. have to get, you know, yeah. waylaid into these Lambo yeah. conversations yeah. and, and stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's obviously it's painful. I mean, people have kind of lost a lot of money, um, but I think it's, it's necessary also for the industry because I yeah. think things were being overpromised. Get us out of the hype yeah. cycle again. Yeah. And hopefully the media will start focusing on... And then often the, the point is often made for technology to be uh, accepted into the mainstream, we almost have to stop talking about it. Yes. You're just using it without even knowing. Yeah, there's and, almost that period where yeah. it kind of goes quiet and people are like... Oh, did that die? It's like, yeah. no, it's everywhere. <laughs> again, yeah. You just, you just stopped yeah. reading crazy articles about it. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to wrap up, we already usually I ask people what's on the roadmap, but that was actually one of the main conversation <laughs> yeah. points. So, is there anything we haven't mentioned that you want to make sure is mentioned? 
Um, just, I mean, definitely follow our, our channels. So we have uh, regular communication in terms of updates with our development uh, blog. And then also please join us on, on this chat and uh, check out our GitHub as well. And that interview with Rachel Black from Lisk rounded off this first episode for the new year and the first episode of this show under this name of the Weekly Squeak. I have been Christian Chiller. You can find more about me at christianchiller.com. If you've enjoyed the show, please share, please rate and review. And you can find ways to support the show at christianchiller.com slash support. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>